0: If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. Amen. Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please uh, open them up to Isaiah chapter six. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, and you would like one, please raise your hand and one of our ushers or, or leaders will get a copy of God's word into your hand. We're going to be in a, what is a somewhat familiar chapter to, to many of us in, in the book of Isaiah, but I pray that this morning it would uh, become fresh to all of us that God would give us a word from his word this morning. So Isaiah chapter six, and uh, w- once you get there, we'll, we'll get in in a moment. Uh, There's a few things that are as frustrating as Ikea furniture, Uh, and if you know me, you already know that, and uh, as an apologist for that, I want to give you a couple reasons. One, it only comes with an Allen key, like who does that? Two, it results in ruined relationships. Ever try and build something with someone from Ikea and try to have lunch afterwards? It doesn't happen. Uh, Third, it comes with unclear instructions. There's only arrows and pictures and you're wondering what you're supposed to do and you end up building it upside down. True story, Uh, that's what happened to me. See, clarity helps us. Clear instructions help us do a task well and efficiently. Clear expectations or communication help us build and maintain healthy relationships. Clear goals help us to not waste time because they keep us focused and motivated on what needs to be done. Clear directions help us by helping us arrive on on time. See, in this passage, Isaiah wants to give us an abundantly clear picture of who God is. And that serves to help us, and here's why. Because seeing God clearly helps us see reality clearly. Seeing God clearly helps us see reality clearly. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter six, starting at verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump." And so, Father, we come to you, we turn to you, asking you for your help. You have been so abundantly gracious to us already this morning by turning our eyes to you, the one who has saved us. And so we ask that as we turn now to your word that by your spirit you would help us see you more clearly. We know we can't do it on our own. We need your help. So Father, speak through your word to us. Feed your people this morning, we pray, all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So starting at verse 1. Verse one gives us some important context, and I don't want us to miss it. Verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, and I want to pause there for a minute or so because it's very important for the rest of the text. At this point in Israel's history, the kingdom has already been divided. See, the northern kingdom had this history of terrible kings who disregarded the law and brought about idol worship and led their people straight into it. Now, the southern kingdom wasn't too much better, but occasionally there were good kings who would destroy the idols and restore temple worship and lead the people back into obedience. King Uzziah was one of those good kings, and he reigned for 52 years. Under his leadership, he expanded the borders of Israel. He strengthened the armies and brought prosperity back to the land in a way that rivaled David and Solomon. But at the height of this, in his pride, he tries to take for himself a privilege that is reserved only for the priests. Now for the sin, God gives him leprosy and he's condemned to live the rest of his life excluded from God's house the hope that the people had to return to a kingdom that was like David's and Solomon, dies with the king. Now this serves as a quick reminder for us that our past faithfulness does not guarantee our present faithfulness. We can't bank on that. See, the moment that Uzziah took his eyes off of his great God and looked down to take in his great accomplishments and successes was the moment he stumbled. Until we arrive in glory, we need to stay vigilant. We need to stay dependent and humble and ask God for his help. By the power of the Spirit, we need to keep warring against the flesh and sin, until we arrive where there will be eternal rest in glory. There's no letting up now. Now it's in the middle of this national crisis that Isaiah has this vision. Look back at verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now quickly, this word Lord that we find in verse one, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is different than the word all caps Lord that we see a couple verses later. Now it's the same word translated for us in English, but in the text, it's two different words. See, uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D is a title that is given to God of sovereign king, whereas all caps L-O-R-D is his covenant name, Yahweh. And so when Isaiah sees this vision and he sees the Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, he's talking about the sovereign king who reigns forever. See, the earthly king Uzziah may be dead, but our God lives King Uzziah may may have reigned for 52 years over a divided kingdom, but the sovereign king reigns forever over all that he has made. God in his kindness raises the eyes of of Isaiah up from the dead and decaying king to the eternal undying sovereign king. That's his kindness. See friends, this should give us great confidence. Why, because human leaders, rulers, kings, presidents, prime ministers will come and go. Some great, others not. But constant through it all, God is on his throne. He's seated, he's not pacing around, he's not worried what he's going to do. Nothing will get in the way of his plan and purposes. And this eternal, undying and sovereign king is also a good king. He loves and cares for his people. So he reigns in justice and righteousness. If you remember when Queen Elizabeth passed, there was a essentially worldwide mourning. Why? Because of her character and conviction. There was a, a despair because there was an end to her reign. For the believer, God's benevolent reign will never cease due to death. So for the Christian, we can, like David say, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of our lives. And this is what else it also means, because God is sovereign over everything. There's nothing that we face, good or bad, that is out of his hand, which he can use for for our good and for his glory. This is the great confidence that we have in our God. And this is the confidence God is instilling in Isaiah by raising his eyes up to him who's seated on the throne. Verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. These seraphim, we don't actually know how how they look like. It's just described as these fiery, angelic beings. They covered their faces as an act of humility because God's brilliance is too bright to be looked at directly. And then they covered their feet because though they are angelic creatures and they are sinless, they are still creatures. The Bible here is highlighting for us how far above God is from all that he has made. See, God isn't simply the highest in the order of beings. Everything else has been made, but God alone is God. God alone is the one who is uncreated. See, God is different, not simply in degree. He's not like us, but better. He's completely different. He's of a different category in kind. And our response to a king like this should be worship. And this is what they do. Look at verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Even the inanimate objects resound in worship to the great God. See, back and forth, they are singing this song. Now, something that might be hidden for us in this text is in Hebrew scripture, the way of emphasis was repetition. Whereas we have our exclamation marks and our various uses of punctuation. Hebrews use, Jews use repetition. Think of Lord, Lord, or Jesus when he says, truly, truly I say to you. But the only time something is raised to the emphasis of a third degree is when it's concerning the holiness of our God. Only God is holy. This is the supreme truth of who God is. But the question we need to ask is, what does holiness mean? can be defined this way. God's holiness is his transcendent purity in all of his attributes, works, and ways. In other words, God alone is God in all of his perfections. And to this worship of and praise, the, the seraphim add that God's glory, the expression of his holiness, the evidence of God's transcendent purity fills the earth. And my son and I, shepherd, we've been memorizing scripture, and one day when he was seeing the trees, he was like, that's beautiful. And I said, you know why? And then we memorized this, Psalm 19, verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. There is not one part of this world that does not reflect the glory of God. All of it proclaims, God made me. Brothers and sisters, this is God's kindness Let me convince you because in his kindness, he gives us countless tangible reminders of his glory and goodness in everything that he has made. What that means is that God in every moment in all that he has made is inviting everyone to himself. That means we are without excuse. But because of sin and pride, we are blind to it. This is why the Bible is so necessary, because it tells us of who God is, his, his works, and about salvation. This is why as those who have been awakened to life, whose eyes have been opened by the work of the power of the Spirit in us to God's glory, we need to go with the word boldly to the lost in our family, community, and world. Now, it's in light of this glorious display of who God is, his sovereignty, his majesty, his holiness, his glory, that we see and hear Isaiah speak for the first time. Verse five, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, seeing God clearly helps us see reality clearly. And in this case, seeing God clearly helps us see humanity clearly. Seeing God clearly helps us see humanity clearly. See the clearest evidence that we have encountered the living God and seen him clearly is that we begin to see ourselves clearly. That we see ourselves as sinful and needy and desperate and that our lives begin to be marked by that of humility. This is what happens to Isaiah. See, having clearly seen God, he sees himself. And his response is that he curses himself. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. See, unlike the seraphim, who in eternal antiphonal praise go back and forth in worship of God, Isaiah's lips are unclean. He can't participate in this song that goes on forever. Why? Because of his sin, and it doesn't stop there. In his humility, he admits that he's no better than anyone else. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. See, Natalie has a vanity mirror at home. Uh, The kids love playing with it. I avoid it at all costs. Why, because it's scary. It highlights everything that I tried to, to hide. or I didn't even know was there. See, the blinding brilliance of God's glory and majesty and his holiness act like this vanity mirror and magnify and expose every imperfection and sin. What that means is in light of who God is, there is no sin too small or insignificant. Why? Because every sin is rebellion against this holy king. And as Isaiah points out, this is our common problem. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All humanity finds themselves under judgment, the same desperate situation. No individual group or culture finds exemption from this situation. And when we understand this reality, we'll dismantle any sense of superiority that we may have. Apart from the grace of God, every single person is in the exact same position of need before God. Humility is the only right response. Now before Isaiah can say any more, God in his initiating grace acts in kindness. Look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken from, with tongs from the altar. Verse seven, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has take, touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Seeing God clearly helps us see grace clearly. Seeing God clearly helps us to see grace clearly. Clearly. See, one of the seraphim, he flies at Isaiah holding a burning hot coal from the altar. And when this coal touches Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't get hurt. No, no, he's healed. Through the sacrifice of another, the judgment of a substitute on the altar, Isaiah is forgiven. Christian brother and sister, this is our story as well. We receive forgiveness through another sacrifice offered on another altar. When we turn to God in humility, desperation, and in faith, God takes the blood of Christ that was sacrificed and offered on the cross and applies it to our lives. And because of that, the spirit who works in power testifies to us, not only of our adoption, but also says the same. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The just demands of the law have been satisfied. That's what atonement means. Paid for in full by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now don't miss this. The forgiveness that is offered to Isaiah is one, complete. As soon as a coal touches his lips, he's forgiven. It's atoned for. His guilt is taken away. There's nothing more Isaiah could do except to cry out. Second, it is sufficient. It deals not only with his confessed sin and his lips, but also his guilt. See, when God forgives us in Christ, that forgiveness is final and full. It's something that we need to continually remind ourselves about about because Satan serves to make us doubt and works hard to help us question God's finished work. He accuses us of our failure and reminds us of our sin. And the temptation then is we think that we need to do more to earn God's favor. But we need to remember, like Isaiah, we did nothing to save us. And there's nothing more that we can add to God's finished work. Our guilt has been removed, not because of anything we have done, all because of God's initiating grace and work. Now, everything that we do is in response to that. It's a response of gratitude, of love, and worship. And notice, that's what Isaiah does as well. Look at verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. In response to the grace that Isaiah experienced, he responds by offering himself completely to the Lord. Now quickly, before we move more into that, did you notice So far in Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah only hears God through the seraphim. Now for the first time, Isaiah hears God directly. He's not far off anymore. He's been brought near and he's close enough to listen in. He's not worried about his unclean lips anymore because they've been cleansed. His sin has been atoned for, his guilt is taken away, so he freely speaks with his God. The forgiveness of God leads to reconciliation with God. It leads to peace with God. Now let's get real practical. When we forgive, we need to model it and strive to model it after the example that we see God give us here. If someone repents and comes to us and asks us for forgiveness, we should give it completely. But not only that, We should pursue as far as it is possible to to achieve peace, reconciliation, and restored relationship with that person. Now it's easier said than done. And it might never get back to the same level of trust, of loyalty, of closeness, this side of heaven. But as far as it depends on you, pursue restored relationships. Why? Because Christ did it for us and at a much greater cost. Back to verse eight. Having experienced the grace of God and now reconciled to God, Isaiah offers himself to the service of God. So God gives him his job description. Look at verse nine. And he said, go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God tells him that his preaching, Isaiah's preaching, will blind eyes, deaden ears, and harden hearts. It's definitely not the kind of ministry a preacher sets out to have. I'll tell you that, That's what I'll admit it. But it's not because Isaiah was a bad preacher. See, in the same way I tell Marv, Pastor Marv, that he has the gift of brevity, he barely cracks 35 minutes. Isaiah has the gift of simplicity. See, in chapter 28, we are told that the people around him complain that his preaching is too simple. It's too basic, it's too elementary, that it was below them. They wanted to keep him in Hope Kids. Isaiah is abundantly clear and simple with his gospel presentation. But in fact, that's exactly why it leads to hardened hearts because the people in their continual rejection of an ever simple gospel message hardens their hearts. Now a principle that I don't want us to miss here is that there is no neutral response when it comes to the preaching of God's word. To not receive it is to reject it. You are either drawn nearer to God like Isaiah was or hardened against him like the people were. See, the, the message didn't change, but like the sun that both melts the snow and hardens the clay, God's word brings life to some and hardens others. Now, I want to be absolutely clear what I am not saying. I'm not saying that you ought to receive God's preaching without any qualifications. No, no, you should be like the Bereans who were called noble because they received God's preaching, they took it back, they tested it against God's word, and when they deemed it to be true and accurate to God's word, they received it with readiness, What is not being said is not to receive it without qualification. What is being highlighted here is our attitude towards God's word. Is it humility or pride? And the call is always humility. Here's what Isaiah says in the last chapter of his book, but this is to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my Word. Receive God's word with humility. Isaiah, hearing his job description, responds with a question. Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? And God gives him the answer. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant And God, through Moses, had warned them and and told them that there's blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. But like a patient father, God displayed his long suffering since then. We're not a couple days after Moses. We're years and years after that. Like a patient father, he displays his long suffering with them with their repeated rebellion. But now it's gone on long enough So God, through Isaiah, pronounces judgment. So God uses the nations of Assyria and Babylon to scatter his people into exile. But even in this pronouncement of judgment, we see a glimmer of hope. Because God being holy, 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 and the earth will be full of his glory, there's no stopping him. Rebellion and sin may have scattered the people, but it will do nothing to stop salvation. Look at verse 13 again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. When we see God clearly, it helps us to see hope clearly. Seeing God clearly helps us to see hope clearly. See, though the judgment of God is severe, the people will be scattered and exiled. God promises to preserve a remnant who are faithful to him. Now you might be asking, where am I getting that? Let me show you. See, the trees mentioned aren't random. Middle Eastern terebinth and oak trees have this uncanny ability to sprout new shoots from a stump even when it's beyond any hope even when they're cut and damaged and felled. As long as there is a stump, there is hope. The forest might have been cut down in God's judgment, but the stump remains. There's still hope. See, friends, for the believer, the judgment of God is not final. See, God disciplines and corrects those that he loves. You should, in fact, be concerned if you never experience God's discipline. See, the judgment and the discipline of God for the Christian brother and sister serves to purify, to validate, and to strengthen our faith. And like the pronouncement of judgment in Isaiah, there's always the promise of grace and hope. Should we turn to him in faith and in repentance? Now, as the book of Isaiah unfolds, what we see In fact, God is pointing beyond simply just a faithful remnant. For in Isaiah chapter 11, he says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Through this faithful remnant, God will produce his Messiah, the promised Davidic king who will redeem and rescue his people, not from physical exile, but from sin and death. And God keeps his word because the Messiah came in Jesus Christ. But as John in his gospel shows us, in John chapter 12, 41, Isaiah said all of these things because he, meaning Isaiah, saw Jesus, his glory, and spoke of him. See, this Messiah who comes is not any other man, but is in fact Yahweh himself, the holy, holy, holy one who reigns sovereignly on his throne. And this holy one takes on flesh and in his work on the cross pays the price our sin demanded, offers us the grace of God to us and secures our hope beyond this life. And when we trust by faith in his work through the spirit, we see God. Though like in a dimmer, in in a mere dimly lit We see him with our eyes of faith. But, and this is our blessed hope, brothers and sisters, one day, he himself, Christ, will present us with great joy, blameless before the Father in the presence of his glory. And what Isaiah trembled at upon seeing, we with unveiled face will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We will see God. And that will be our life's and our heart's greatest treasure and the fountain of all joy. Isaiah trembled at it. Woe is me, for I have seen the king. But for us, one day, that is our blessed hope. It's promised to us. It's what we look forward to with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We will see him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for how you, in your word, show yourself clearly to us. We pray that this morning that our hearts would have been drawn nearer to you. Let us not respond like the people did by holding your word at an arm's length, but that we would bring it in, take it, consume what is good for us and and that your word would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. You are the holy, holy, holy one whose glory fills this earth. So we pray that this morning as we respond in song right now, As we join in with the song that Isaiah could not participate in, but which we can because of the blood of Christ, which has cleansed us. We pray that you would receive it and that you would stir up in our hearts an eager expectation for the joy that is set before us, that one day we will see you. Pray all of this in Christ's glorious name, amen. Resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.